Before we start this episode, I would like to take a minute to tell you about the upcoming Texas Woodworking Festival, where makers and enthusiasts come together to celebrate their love for the craft. Join us for this two-day event filled with fun, creativity, and inspiration. The festival brings together lumberyards, woodworking organizations and clubs, content creators, furniture makers, and tool manufacturers for a weekend of food, drinks, and all things woodworking. This year, the festival is launching educational seminars where you'll have the opportunity to learn from some true masters of the craft, including Frank Straza, Philip Morley, Kim McIntyre, and Andrew Hunter, just to name a few. The festival will be held in Austin, Texas on August 26th and 27th. Visit TexasWoodworkingFestival.com for more information and to buy tickets. Whether you're a seasoned woodworker or just starting out, there's something for everyone at the Texas Woodworking Festival. Hi, I'm Kyle, and on episode 450 of the MWA podcast, Sean, Brian, and myself are asking Frank Straza the five questions. And if you haven't already, be sure to check out Frank's interview on episode 449. So welcome back to the show, Frank. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me having me back. Got it. Glad to have you. So uh, before we get started with the five questions, do we have a Patreon shout out? Uh, we do. A big thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Today, we're giving a big shout out to Nick Carruthers. Uh, if you would like to support the MWA podcast, go to www.patreon.com forward slash MWA podcast. And we'd very much like your uh, your support. Exactly. And Nick Ruthers is the grain doctor on Instagram. And he had a couple of hilarious posts here in the last few days. Mm -hmm. so, well, let's go ahead and get started with the five questions. So, uh, Brian, why don't you get us started? Sure. Frank, uh, for our first question we usually ask is, how did you get into woodworking? Wow. Um, that's somewhat of a loaded question. How much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> a couple hours. We're good. Yeah, I go. <laughs> well, my first recollection of any interest in woodworking um, is my mom bought me an egg beater drill when I was seven years old at an old antique store. And um, I think that um, that probably has carried over now I'm always stopping at antique, antique stores and trying to find old tools. Um, so, um, but that's my first recollection. However, um, I actually built a, uh, my, my grandfather was a home builder in New York. My great grandfather was a home builder in Greenwich, Connecticut, um, where I was born. And I, uh, the story is, is that I built a, a stool, a little, child stool with my great grandfather in his basement workshop when I was three years old. And oh. I actually have that stool. Um, oh, wow. It's, it's quite crude and it's nailed together. And, uh, but uh, it's fun. You know, it's neat that I have that. Um, but anyway, so then when I was around 10 or 11, um, there were some classes um, in the local community that um, were given for, for young, young people. And, um, and so I was able to make some projects uh, there. And then um, those classes developed when I was 11. Um, I actually was able to um, take some more classes and learn how to do some hand cut dovetails and built my first piece of furniture when I was 12. Um, and I, I think the story goes, um, 
my mom actually contacted one of the teachers of this class and said, you know, my son doesn't want to go out and play anymore. He just wants to go in the shop and cut dovetails. And, uh, <laughs> you know, she was worried about me. Um, but uh, this was when and I was... And this is where the houndstooth dovetail was born, right here. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure these... I, I still kind of have this recollection of just, like, making tons of dovetails when I was, you know, and they were quite crude. And, of course, I was cutting them. I was taught to cut pins first, which, you know, is... <laughs> Totally the wrong way. Oh boy! Yo, oh yeah, of course it is. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, then when I started my apprenticeship, so I started an apprenticeship with a gentleman um, called Mark Swenison. He's since passed away, um, but he taught me the the right way to do, to do it. Uh, tails first. Tails first. And, um, but we uh, we actually had a shop in Austin, and we were building furniture. Um, it was the shop was called Early Texas, and we were building furniture. Um, in the early Texas style, this was back in the early 90s, and mm -hmm. building uh, furniture in the early Texas style using reclaimed longleaf yellow pine. This was back before reclaimed was even a thing. I mean, we were getting these huge building uh, timbers, these timbers that were coming from warehouses yeah. uh, that were cut down. I mean, they, the, the warehouses were built um, 100, you know, mm -hmm. more than 100 years ago. So these were built 100 and whatever, 120 years ago, um, and they were being taken down. Um, and these timbers were all longleaf pine, old growth longleaf pine. So back at the turn of the century, there were vast forests all along the, like the Gulf Coast area of uh, virgin forests of old growth longleaf pine, and they were cut down to make these warehouses. And so we were getting these, these timbers. And I remember we were getting those, that stuff for like, 50 cents a board foot or something i mean it was wow. ridiculous amount yeah ridiculous low price you know i recently so i i built some furniture for my for my folks and they wanted to me to make some some leaves to extend their table and i had to go buy some longleaf pine mm. and it was like ten dollars a board foot and i was like <laughs> 50 cents a board foot for this stuff like what the heck but uh yeah yeah there's a there's a uh shop around here it's called the wood shop of texas that is actually doing that getting all that reclaimed longleaf pine and turn it into flooring is basically what they're doing yeah so that's yeah. A, that was a that was a bit we actually in the shop we actually did that as well we had a molder and we would make flooring and all kinds of stuff so that was a um it was a great opportunity to um to do that i worked with with mark for about three three or so years. He was an amazing teacher. Um, for the first year working with him, and I know I'm kind of probably getting past the question because you just asked, how did I get into woodworking? <laughs> no, <you're laughs> I'm kind of telling you my journey. Is that, is that no, okay? That, no, that's, that's fine. That's, that's fine. That's what so, we want to know. Okay. So I worked for the first year with Mark just um, right alongside um, him on his projects. Of course, I could only um, you know do the the tasks he would do the, the fine joinery and then i would just help him so that was the first year and that was great because i could just i learned so much just like how a piece of furniture went together and gluing boards up and just just the basics um and just and then after that year i started building my own pieces but under his watchful eye like my bench was positioned right next to his and you know, I was still obviously apprenticing with him, but still building my own pieces. So that was that was great. Um, and then 
after that, I went on as a journeyman and started working with Paul Sellers. And I worked with Paul for probably about eight years. And that was an amazing experience because Paul introduced just a whole nother level of hand tools. I mean, Mark Swenderson worked with, with hand tools, but not as much as Paul. Like Paul had that, you know, obviously has that that real foundation in, in hand skills. And, mm-hmm. and then at that same time, Paul was also... Um, uh, Paul was also starting a, a school, and so I learned how to teach from Paul, and and uh, so learned so much from from Paul Seller. So really grateful for the time that I I had with him. Um, so yeah, that's kind of that's kind of the how I got into it and a little bit of my journey. Well, cool. Well, do you do uh, you um, do the same sharpening system that Paul uses? I vary it a little bit. Okay. Um, so, but I it's very much close to the same as mm-hmm. Paul's. Um, and, um, I'm, um, I, um, I do talk about like the differences between sharpening and like, I think one of the things, um, I can definitely go off on a, a sharpening tangent, uh, but, <laughs> um, I'll try to refrain from going too far. Um, but one of the things that I think people don't necessarily understand or don't totally grasp is they're like they're they're trying to decide like which sharpening method should i use and i think chris schwartz wrote one time that you know whatever sharpening method you you choose stick with that and the reason why you want to stick with that is like for example if you're sharpening i use diamond stones paul's used uses diamond stones you have to understand diamond stones are very hard so um your tool is going to um your tool has to give to the flatness of whatever that diamond stone is. And of course, flat is a very relative term. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean flat. Yeah. It's a relative term, right? So, but you have to understand that that diamond stone is harder than your tool. So your tool has to give to whatever anomaly is in that diamond, is in that diamond stone. If I take a water stone, a water stone is softer than the tool so the if i sharpen with a water stone the water stone is going to give to the anomaly that might be in my tool okay mm-hmm. so if i'm flattening um say i'm flattening the back of a chisel um it's going to be easier for me to flatten the back of a chisel on a water stone because the water stone is going to give to whatever subtle anomaly is in that in the unflatness and again flatness being a relative term it's still going to be flat but it's going to give to whatever subtle anomaly might be in the back of that of that chisel or plane iron mm-hmm. however if i flatten the back of a chisel on a diamond stone it may take me a lot longer because now i have to conform that chisel to the diamond stone does that make sense that makes perfect sense. Yeah, I've never heard it uh, put that way, but that's excellent. So, the, and yeah. that's why you can't really yeah. switch between because, like, mm-hmm. all of my chisels and plain irons are conformed to my specific set of diamond stones. So, if I went and started sharpening with water stones, I'm going to put a very subtle round, which again isn't a problem. I don't, you know, mm-hmm. uh, we're talking about on a micro, micro, or macro, I and mean, it's super micro level, right? Um, not macro, but micro level. So, um, but it's going to round it ever so slightly because that water stone is, is soft. So you're kind of pushing into that stone a little bit. And so you're going to round it a little bit. So then if I went from water stone back to the diamond stone, then I'm going to have to take 
that subtle roundness or anomaly out and conform it to the diamond stone. So um, stick with whatever method you're using. I choose diamond because it's um, it's just lower maintenance. It's way more work to get the tool initially flat to the diamond stone, but once you do, it's done forever. And uh, I actually have, I recently discovered a, a lapping plate that you can order um, from um, this place in California that does um, like they use it for lapping like discs or something. It's but it's a it's a cast iron lapping plate, and you use that combined with um, a, um, a, a aluminum oxide. And you have to use cast iron because the aluminum oxide has to like meld into the cast iron. And it's it's a very quick way of lapping the back of your tools, and then you can go to the diamond stone. So if you're using diamond stone, because the problem is is you can you can't really expedite the the process by using sandpaper, even if you use a super super fine set of fine sandpaper, because the sandpaper is going to round it very very slightly, and then you're just going to be chasing out that round on your diamond plate. Mm-hmm. But but the but the um but the um uh this this lapping this cast iron lapping plate is very similar to uh, a diamond plate but you can adjust the grit obviously and with the aluminum oxide you can use 400 grit you can use 600 grit and you can apply new aluminum oxide so you have fresh grit and it really is just a great way of lapping the back of your tools but anyway that was a rabbit no. trail, and I digressed. Um, but no, I, I, I'm sold. You need to you need to post something on that lapping plate if you haven't already. Yes, yeah. I missed it. Yeah, I, I'll try. I'll try. I don't think I have. I was kind of keeping under wraps, but um, oh, but no, that no reason to. <laughs> so <laughs> that's out of the bag. Yeah, yeah. Because I use diamond stones myself, and yeah. Oh, that, cool. it, it, it is it is a challenge when you got something new and it's like all right this is going to take 45 minutes to an hour <laughs> oh my gosh it's it's so annoying it's like it's just one of those things like yeah. um but you know once it's done it's done but, yeah, oh, yeah exactly so I'll, I'll definitely send i'll try to put this information out about slapping plate because it's like when you're when you get a new tool it's it just makes it go so much faster oh yeah yeah Wow, well, that's cool. Well, speaking of tools, um, what is your favorite tool? And our limit is 23. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Because <laughs> the question is, what's your favorite tool, not what's your favorite tools? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I was my first response was going to be, uh, how can I narrow this down to what my favorite tool singular is? Yeah. Uh, but, my goodness. Uh, so, so I can... I can uh, tell you what my favorite tools, plural. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, yes, of course. Okay, excellent. Um, oh, my. Um, well, I, I would say we should, like, break this down into categories, right? Like, what's my favorite saw? Yes. Uh, then what is my favorite plane? Uh, um, <laughs> so, you know, it's it's a, it's a kind of a hard question um, to answer just because, okay, okay, I know, I know what my favorite one I'm going to put it at the top of the list. This is kind of a pet peeve of mine. Um, a marking tool. So a marking knives um, are one of those things that I see so many people come in class with a traditional like marking knife, mm-hmm. single bevel, you know, and it's just like the end of the knife is not sharp. And 
a marking knife, the end of the knife, the actual juncture where where the very tip of it has to be perfectly sharp or else it really is not going to work right. And this ties in with the whole sharpening thing. And I found that as my tools become dull, the quality of my work also digress. Um, so the quality of my work is very much linked to how sharp my tools are. Um, and that really has a lot to do with your marking knife. And my favorite marking knife is not very expensive. It's a $20 or $25 uh, made by File Tools, the Swiss company. And it's a number four chip carving knife. And I use, it's a double bevel knife. It's not single bevel, it's double bevel. The advantage of a double bevel knife, because the, the problem with a single bevel knife is if you take that single bevel, now you have to hold that flat against the square, perfectly against the square. And it's easy for one, for it to veer from the square or two, for it to actually cut into the side of the square, right? Mm -hmm. But a double bevel knife, you can actually angle the knife over so the very edge of it, the very tip of it makes contact and it just works so well. I use that for marking out. And I found I um it's interesting because um I the the Florida school actually provides a lot of the tools and they have these, you know, you know, terrible like single bevel marking knives, and it was just like dull and they're just not working right. And I I convinced um Kate, I was like, please buy these um these these marking knives, these uh, files, Swiss cars, Swiss chip carving knives. And I swear that when she bought those the very next class, the joinery like was amazing, much, much better. All oh. the students joinery, like literally just jumped n many notches better. Um, so huge, huge proponent of, of this because really honestly, like this is the foundation the, this marking knife is the foundation, and if you take any of my classes, you'll see how this tool is like. It's the it's the building block of which joinery is built on. So being able to have an extremely precise, fine line to the, where you can then come in with a chisel and um, and work to that line, and it's just super important. So anyway, um, you got not only did you get a little bit of uh, my favorite tool, but you. You got a little bit of um, your listeners got a little bit of uh, woodworking education there too. So there you uh, go. <laughs> well, well, so so do we. Uh, I yeah. got a couple of chip carving knives, and they're moving out of the uh, tool cabinet onto the bench top starting tomorrow. So. Oh, great! <laughs> so it was actually the um, they captured that knife in the in the front of the, of my article in uh, Fine Woodworking. So um, if you still have that article, you can see that, see a picture of that. Oh, I need to go back. Yeah. Yeah, I yes. do. I do. I'm, I'm one of those digital subscribers and oh. I need to get, I need to get on the print subscription because I find with the digital, it'll be months before I go back and actually start looking at the episodes, at least when they arrived in the mail, I would see them when they got here, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Another one of my favorite tools. Um, I got two more and then, then I'll let you go. Um, but um, another one is my Lee Nielsen number four and a half with a 55 degree angle frog. And um, I used to, so Paul uses a, um, a four and a half. He got me hooked on the four and a half. I love the four and a half. It's wider than the number four. Number four is nice. Mm -hmm. um, I'm actually order a number four because I have a number four Stanley, but I don't have a number four Lee Nielsen. And by the way, I'm a huge proponent of Lee Nielsen planes. Like they are. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
they're the best, right? I'm, mm -hmm. I'm preaching. I'm preaching to the choir. Yeah, yeah, you're preaching uh, to the choir. Yeah. yeah, I even have their number so, fifty-one. So, so do I. Oh, <laughs> uh, but they're fifty-five degree angle frog. Mm -hmm. um, so forty-five degree is is you know standard, but by having that fifty-five degree, it just enables you to be able to just oh man, just just take off, just a, a work in in woods because I work in Sapelli and I work in maple and beech, and a lot of times you'll have intertwined grain and one of the keys that i think a lot of people do is they take way too much material off back sharpen the blade back that blade off to where it's barely skimming the surface like barely skimming the surface and, and even if like when you start planing you're initially not taking very much off what happens is when you run something through your planer um, there's subtle undulations in the surface of the material um, mm -hmm. so when you run something through, you have subtle undulations based on, you know, spiral cutter head or whatever. And if you set that plane really, 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 really fine, your initial strokes aren't taking anything off, but they really are. They're just hitting just those high spots. So you're taking half a thou off. And then once you knock those high spots off, then you start cutting. And because your plane is set really fine, you're not going to get much tear out. And that 55 degree angle it's phenomenal it's just it's just the way to go so um there's that and then some of my favorite saw my favorite saw is um the florip um a dovetail saw i just love love that oh, saw. Yes. Unfortunately, yeah unfortunately it's not me. yeah unfortunately yeah he's um i'm wishing him the best and hoping yeah. that he can get back into into making the saws but in the meantime you know a bad axe makes a great saw. It makes a wonderful mm -hmm. saw. Pricey, but they're well worth well worth the price. Um, and then, you know, if you don't want to spend that much, then I honestly, I would just go with a straight handled dovetail saw, like a crown gent saw, but get a 10 inch. Don't get anything shorter, but get a 10 inch. I have a, I have a straight handled um, dovetail saw that honestly is like my favorite, like go-to dovetail saw. It has a plate is 17 thousandths. It's just straight handle. I got it for nine ninety nine on eBay. It's just, <laughs> it's a wonderful tool. I sharpened it up and it just works. Um, but you can buy a crown 10 inch dovetail saw. It will need to be sharpened. It'll have too much set. You'll have to knock some of the set off. You'll have to sharpen it. I've got some, there's some videos on YouTube on sharpening. Um, sharpen it to rip um, and it, it'll work great. Like, and it's, you know, 25, 30 bucks. So um, anyway, yeah. So that's Fantastic. probably enough for favorite. I think those are probably. <laughs> oh, that that that's wonderful. That's wonderful. I don't think I've ever used a gent saw. Um, it, is it is it? Do you like them because you have more control in in kind of? I don't know. I I've always heard like they they do they 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 maybe a tight grip doesn't change it as much or something like that where you're 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 able to because I know your little houndstooth are very precise and if you're doing that with a gent saw. It's just a, it's, you're letting the tool do the work. You're, you're very delicately holding the tool or something like that. I've never, again, I've never actually handled one, but so, I understand they're functionally different. Yeah. So I probably should identify what I mean by gent saw. Um, cause a gent saw I think can mean different things. A gent saw typically, um, is, uh, sorry for the dog barking in the background. Oh, <laughs> um, but a, a gent saw, um, can mean like a shorter saw. So like maybe a, um, typically a gent saw would be straight handle that's shorter, like say eight inches or so. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and but I I like the straight handle, but a longer, so like ten inch. So it, right. So I would probably the defining um, the defining thing would be um, uh, the the straight handle versus pistol grip. Yes. And yeah. um, and the main difference there, and I think this is the thing that I really like about the floor up saw is that so floor up saw is a pistol grip style versus straight handle. But when you're sawing, you really want the um, you want your hand pressure to be di- you're directly behind the saw. So you get a real linear motion. And this is something I really talk about a lot in the classes. Um, but you get this real like linear motion as opposed to downward pressure. And a lot of pistol grip saws, the um, the um, the the pressure, the hang of the handle is too high. So it it directs the pressure down on the on the uh, the front of the saw, and it instead of you getting more linear pressure. So it's kind of hard to explain this via um, uh, just on the on a podcast versus maybe say like a video or, or in person. Right. But in a straight handle saw, the pressure is more linear. So a lot of people like say for example like a a Japanese saw because it's cuts on the pull stroke. Well, what that is is a pull stroke is just linear motion right you're just pulling that well Mm -hmm. a a western saw must be the exact same linear motion as a japanese saw but just on the push stroke right a lot of people like again and that's what i love about the floor up saw is if you look if you compare his the hang of his handle versus the hang of like say um some other handles where the hang is higher um, that hang actually tends to put more pressure forward as opposed to lower, so more linear. Hopefully that makes. <laughs> so I, I'm I'm generally uh, interested, given your your background in woodworking, uh, who has influenced you the most? Wow. Um, well, I think there's been. I've had a lot of wonderful influences. Um, the um, of course Paul Sellers was like a major influence early on, and like teaching me hand tool woodworking so um i owe a lot to to him um also i would say just going to museums and studying like period furniture it's such a humbling experience like that's a really like i really and fond of the of the federal federal furniture um and just it's just i feel like an absolute beginner going to to museums and and studying the furniture um so far as other influence, um, I would say Steve Lada's uh, just amazing. But I think right now I would say my biggest, <laughs> my biggest hero, if you will, is Silas Kopf, K-O-P-F. Oh yes, mm-hmm. yes, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he is. Uh, he is probably my biggest influence, and when it comes to marketry, because I really try to like style my marketry, kind of my my technique. So like I mentioned in the last episode, they're like lots of different techniques for marquetry um the french have their method the italians have their method and then there's even within the french the french have multiple methods and there's just so many different methods but the the method that silas uses is really this it, it's a double bevel method um and uh, but it's the it allows you to be able to just piece together the wood and really paint um paint a picture essentially with the wood and let 
each the grain configuration and the tonal changes of the wood and the 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 all of that just really piece and and be able to put in slivers that are super 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 small um so yeah and then silas is not only is his marketry amazing but his furniture designs are just phenomenal so i'm yeah oh, yeah I yeah, I saw a presentation he gave at uh, one of the woodworking in Americas years ago. And yeah, it it was it, it was really my first introduction to uh, marquetry on that type of scale. But I remember him showing some of his pieces and then passing around some samples of some veneer work he was putting together. Um, it's just taped together and stuff. And I'm just going, you got to be kidding me! Yeah, <laughs> he's yeah. amazing. I've been to his shop a couple times. I'm actually gonna. Yeah. Hopefully, get to study with him here in in a little bit. Um, I, I did actually get to study with him uh, several years back, but um, I'm gonna spend get to spend a little bit of time with him coming up next month. So I'm really excited about that. All right, Frank. So, what is your biggest stumbling block? <sighs> what is my biggest stumbling block? <laughs> Sleep, I think. Uh, <laughs> not enough time in the day. I need more money. That's probably it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a starving artist. No, yes. my biggest stumbling, you know what my biggest stumbling block is? Um, and I think it's tied to, um, I, it's, it has to do with, um, I feel like I lack um, artistic, art, my artistic ability, um, my artistic skill. And what I mean by that is my ability to be able to like draw and like really capture. So I mentioned Silas Kopf. And one of the things about Silas is he is, an amazing artist so he can draw like he'll just draw what he is going to create and um i'm i've actually taken some art classes and i enrolled in like a, a semester of like some art and and that was quite humbling just doing that i did that last fall and um man it was that was like trying to that old adage about teaching a an old dog new tricks man it was hmm. uh that was a real mind bender, like just just like learning, like really learning. Mm -hmm. I went to an atelier, which is like a classical method of of teaching, a really traditional classical method, and um, it was it was really enlightening. But um, I don't know. So I mean, and that's like just something I just have to do more of, right? But I envy people like you know Aspen Golan, who's just she's an amazing artist, and I think that's one of the things that has really like just pushed her forward so much in her craft is the ability to be able to just draw like her artistic mm -hmm. ability mm -hmm. uh, and i see that a lot like with with woodworkers like if if somebody has like this ability to be able to just draw or paint or like do that so i mean i don't know i you know i mean i obviously like, i do have some artistic ability but uh, that's that's something that i see kind of as a as somewhat of a of a block but uh, and then more space i need more space <laughs> exactly <laughs> you need your easels and, I, you know yeah. all that kind of stuff yeah. yeah yeah but just being able to see yeah. too like I, I i um one of my my interests and passions is also carving and um i want to study more carving and i've done some with alexander grebovetsky but um but just like he's also an amazing artist like he can mm -hmm. see in that three-dimensional aspect and leaves turning underneath and like that's just like that's it's just an eye that you have to just develop so yeah i uh i need to live a few more lifetimes i think <laughs> <laughs> don't we all 
Yes. Final, final question. Uh, how has the internet influenced your work, if at all? Yeah. You know, I mean, I think the internet can be like a little bit of a double-edged sword because um, one is um, the internet is amazing for both, you know, promoting your work and advertising. And obviously it's, it's been great for exposing my work to, to the world. And obviously I can reach people all in Dubai, us. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Geez. Exactly. I mean, it, it really is amazing. Like, I mean, yeah. I have people, you know, message me from all over the, all over the globe. And, um, and it's, it's also kind of humbling too, to just, you know, think that they're interested in some, some guys work in, in central Texas, um, when they're, you know, from European countries and whatever else. But, um, but so, no, I think that being able to reach, um, reach people is is amazing it also unfortunately can be a distraction you know obviously i think social media as we all know can just be a distraction um and can keep you from work um i think also um i know early on like when i was first getting into marketry like i i literally went and just studied silas cops videos whatever videos that i could find on like youtube and and whatever else and like watch them over and over and like what how is he doing this like and just like just trying to soak in every tiny detail um and i think you know i i know that the internet is just like obviously granted so much access to the craft um so you know i mean that's um i think it can be overwhelming to people sometimes because there's so much information but i guess the question was how has it influenced my work so yeah um hopefully i answered that i yeah. think i think you did i mean it it, it is a it, it's not a simple thing because it can be a lot of things it is distracting um mm -hmm. it's also a a endless pit of information good and bad exactly um, but yeah. you i mean if you're saying that you poured over silas Koff's videos i mean yeah the internet made that very available to you so i'm sure yeah. some microfilm somewhere in a library might have had it too but sitting in your house on the internet was a much easier way to find it. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and I think it's great that, you know, so many people put stuff out there like, you know, of course I'm into Windsor's and I did the same thing that you do with Silas to all of Curtis Buchanan's videos that are out there. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, what a yeah. treasure trove, what a yeah. treasure trove. I mean, you know, and just to think like, I mean, he took the time to make those. And I remember watching some of those and just, you learn so much from, mm -hmm. and that's what, I like to see like somebody like, you know, Curtis, Curtis Buchanan or, you know, Silas Koff and some of these like masters, um, really true masters that just have years and years of experience. Just, it's really, it's pretty neat to, to watch that. Cause I don't, I don't really watch that many woodworking videos, but if there is like a video like that, like, you know, Silas or like Curtis Buchanan or something, it's like, yeah, I'll watch this. Yeah. Is, this mm -hmm. But, you know, I mean, nothing really, nothing really compares to, one-on-one -on -one hands-on mm -hmm. work i actually um actually just had the opportunity to teach a he actually just um left today but he was um he was um a 15 year old was uh, working with me building his own workbench we were working together but yeah. i mean his um you know and obviously he has access to the internet he's you know he subscribes to some of the videos and that's it's it's helpful when somebody does that because they have like this knowledge already but they don't have the skill because you can't, mm -hmm. you can't ask youtube 
questions. Right? <laughs> yeah, you, you can say, oh, I've seen that before, but you can't right? say you've done it before, right? There's a, there's a big difference between knowledge and skill. And I think the skill is something that, you know, really can be imparted through, you know, one-on-one -on -one or in a class setting or just going out to the shop and doing it. Um, so, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. It's 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 hard to get some of these concepts across, especially in a hobby like this, where it's based on handwork and stuff like that through video. You know, it's like, you know, how do you know when a plane feels sharp? How do you know when it feels dull? You know, these mm -hmm. these type of things, you know, or heaven forbid you you put it on video that pins first is the way to go or tails yes. first is the way to go oh yeah exactly frank yeah. klaus will yell at you yeah i know yeah you can I mean, have the war of, of frank and anybody else that opposes exactly. him exactly well that's right? how i first learned i remember first watching frank klaus yeah that's yep awesome. Awesome. <laughs> i tell you i saw him in person and he's just as fascinating as on video yes he's, he's an awesome guy i want to see that, that round shop of his so much isn't mm -hmm. it great? I remember I met him uh, one time at a at woodworking show. He judged one of my pieces and um, I had a I had a photo album uh, of me building a piece and there was a picture of me cutting dovetails and he I was showing him the photo album and he saw the picture and he just got so excited. He ran and grabbed his wife and he said, that's exactly how I looked when I was that age. I looked. Oh my that. gosh. It was really cool. It was really a great moment. That's phenomenal. <laughs> Yeah. So. Well, that's fantastic. Well, uh, Frank, where can uh, folks find you on the internet? So um, I post a lot of stuff on Instagram. Um, okay. So Straza Furniture, S-T-R-A-Z-Z-A. -Z um, and I, you can also find my uh, somewhat outdated website, which is also strazafurniture.com. Um, and I don't really do much with the website, but there are pictures and the website can be a little bit hard to navigate, but if you click on like the different um, uh, show pieces, I think that like I, you know, I post when when I want it at a furniture show or whatever, I have pictures there, but I need to update the website, but I do, it's so much easier to do it on Instagram. So, and I post a lot on my story. So I don't post as much on my actually Instagram page, but I post a lot on my stories, which disappear after 24 hours. Um, I do have a YouTube channel. I only have a few videos up, but I plan to put more up. And then, of course, if you don't have Instagram, I also have a Facebook page, which is Frank Straza Furniture. So, oh, okay. Yep. Fantastic. Excellent. Brian, what about yourself? Uh, Instagram is where I put everything up for my antics here. And it's Obst Woodworks. And Obst is O-B-S-T. Kyle, how about you? You can always find me on Instagram at barton.kyle or bbcustomtools, bbcustomtools.com or on YouTube under bbcustomtools or Kyle Barton. Sean, what about yourself? I don't post much, but when I do, you can find me on most social medias at seanw78. And that just about wraps it up for this show. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show on the podcatcher of your choice. Just search for the Modern Woodworkers Association. And while you're there, please leave us a review. You can follow us on Instagram at MWA underscore podcast. And if you'd like to support the podcast, go over to patreon.com slash MWA podcast. But the best thing you can do is tell a friend. Word of mouth goes a long way in sharing our discussion.